Open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 this morning. We're covering the entire chapter, which is why we, we read it. It'll be really helpful as we go through the book. We'll be covering a chapter at, at a time, at least until we get to the visions. It'll be really helpful if you read ahead of time um, and just thought of some questions that, that may come to your mind as you, as you read the text. Last Sunday night during our church history session, uh, I mentioned a man named, uh, named Polycarp. Some of you have heard of him. I want to remind you of his story this morning as kind of an intro. He was an early Christian and a disciple of the Apostle John. And history tells us he was a, he was a humble and uneducated man, but, but a stalwart in the faith. He, he later became the pastor of the church in Smyrna in you may remember that that was one of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to in the, in the book of Revelation. And in that letter, the Lord writes to the church at Smyrna, He, he says, I, I know your afflictions and your poverty, but, but you are rich. And He's speaking there about their spiritual riches. Yet He ends that letter with, with this statement. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's Revelation 2.10. And about 65 years after those words were read in the church, in 155 A.D., Polycarp got a chance to model them. He, he was arrested for being a Christian and escorted to the local proconsul. Um, Statius Quadratus was the proconsul, and he interrogated him in front of a crowd and he pleaded with him. He said, have respect for your old age, swear by Caesar, reproach Christ, and, and I will set you free. And, and Polycarp's answer has been etched in the granite of history. You've probably heard it before. He said, 86 years I've served him and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior now? Quadratus lost his temper and told Polycarp he would, he would throw him to the wild beasts and he would, he would burn him at the stake. And Polycarp responded to the proconsul that, that he's the one that should be concerned because while his fire lasted but a little while, the fires of eternal judgment reserved for the ungodly are unquenchable. And he ended with, why do you delay? Come and do what you will. And the soldiers grabbed Polycarp to, to nail him to, to the stake. And, and the elder said, leave me alone for he... He who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security that you desire from the nails. And he prayed aloud and the fire was lit and he died. What kind of spiritual metal must be in a person to face such a thing and not cower? What kind of principle must there be? there be in, in, in someone's heart to, to keep a person from, from compromise. And, and you say, well, well, he was 86, and so he's ready to go be with the Lord. Well, what about a 15-year-old or 16-year-old? What about Daniel? You read about in chapter 1. Do you have that, that kind of conviction? You may well not face a funeral pyre like Polycarp, but rest assured, the Bible says all who live godly will suffer persecution, and, and it's likely to be a lot more subtle than, than you, would, you would like it to be. You'll face the seducing philosophies of, of this world that will coax you to capitulate. You'll, 
You'll be called to concede your, your convictions for an easier path. You'll, you'll be asked to make scriptural concessions, to, to conform to social pressures, to find the middle ground, all in the name of compassion for others. And in those moments, the difference between compromise and conviction will be found in your spiritual character that's already in you. Character is what holds the nails of conviction in place when, when the warm but toxic winds blow. I mean, you think, might think of it this way. Biblical conviction picks the place to stand, but purpose character is the muscles of faith that hold you there. That's like the barb on the hook. And you must cultivate that kind of character before you ever feel the wind. Because once you feel the wind, it's too late if it's, if it's not already in you. And that's the lesson that, that God will teach us from Daniel chapter 1 this morning. And we, we introduced the book last week, and we kind of took a helicopter ride over its contours, and we saw the structure of the book is clear. It's like two giant mountain peaks that are jutting up from the book of Daniel, the, the two segments of the book, the the first six stories, chapters 1 through 6, written in the third person, the first mountain peak, followed by four visions in chapters 7 through, through 12, and that's the, that's the second. They're written in first person. And the historical portion that you learned in Sunday school, that our children are learning in Sunday school right now, uh, they were written for personal instruction for God's people, like, like chapter 1 today. It provides us an inspired pattern to, to follow, and I think it's a good way to think about the, the first six chapters, like examples, before ever giving us the expectation of what's coming in the, the latter chapters. It gives believers of all ages some of the greatest examples of faith in, in all, of the, all of the Bible. And, and then the latter half of the book is the expectations of the hard times that are coming and, and then the ultimate deliverance that God will, will bring. So the second half of the book, in chapters 7 through 12, God foretells exactly what's going to take place in Daniel's future and in your future, in both the Jewish and the Gentile world. And The book of Daniel is prophetic insight, uh, not just personal example. It's pro- prophetic insight about God's plan for the, the ages of the world. The visions tell us about the future that is to come. Daniel is one of, one of the pivotal books in all the Bible. It sets the prophetic timeline for, for all of Scripture, it, it prophesies uh, 500 years in three different areas, and it will stretch thousands of years all the way into the second coming of Christ. And, and we said that the book has, has two goals. Number one, to teach you how you're to live as strangers and pilgrims in a world that's, that's not your home. It gives you direction facing hostility. It provides tangible lessons so you can see how to be faithful, uh, and in those lessons, we also learn about how God will respond to us and how He'll care for us. But secondly, it, it tells you what's coming next. There's no more detailed prophecy in, in all, of, all of Scripture, so much so that, that the critics say it's impossible that, that it wasn't written until later. <laughs> Because it's so specific. Imagine that. The God who created the world, the God who can give you salvation, knows the future and, and actually tells it to us ahead of time. It's not hard to believe for a Christian. And so Daniel foretells what will happen on, on the earth as things move toward the end. He also tells you what's coming. There will be the reign of God's true king, the son of man, and his earthly kingdom will be established. 
And chapter 1, which, which we'll look at today, serves as an introduction to, to those two mountain peaks. Think of it like coming to the base of the mountain and you're, you're staring up at the, at the, the, the hilltop of, of, of the stories and chapter 1 is the beginning of, of the climb. And it's an introduction not only to the book of Daniel, but to the character of, of the man that, that you're going to be following through all these books, the, the, the guy that God gives these, these visions to. So in chapter 1, we learn how Daniel ends up in Babylon. We learn what kind of man he was and, and how God will preserve him. Um, all three scenes. Uh, the, chapter 1 is, it, it can really be defined in, in, in three scenes. And Daniel's example provides a pattern in the midst of those three scenes for us to, to imitate. God gave... Daniel purposed, God gave, and God gave. I mean, that, that's really the outline of, of chapter 1. The insights, though, reveal the character of conviction. There are three of them, the same kind that you need. Daniel was removed by God in verses 1 through 7. Daniel was resolved to follow God in verses 8 through 16. And Daniel was recognized through God in verses 17 through, through 21. Well, the first insight comes as we're told that Daniel was removed by God in verses 1 through 7. And in these first seven verses, uh, you see this, this movement from Judah's defeat to Daniel's deportation to the Babylonian deprogramming that, that, that takes place. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of, uh, of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Verses 1 and 2 starts with, with history and the defeat of the, the kingdom of Judah. And if you want to understand the book of Daniel, you have to understand the background that's going on with these two kingdoms that are, that are presented here. And, and, and there's a biblical assumption that you would know that. I mean, just think about how matter-of-factly this starts. It, it talks about two kings, and it talks about uh, a deportation, and, and it's assuming that, that you know some things. Have you ever opened up uh, one of those surprise nut cans that people give you and, you know, out comes that big springy slinky thing? Well, verses 1 and 2 is kind of like that. When you're reading this, the, the, the history from other parts of Scripture just springs forth, bursts out with a lot of, a lot of details. There's the kingdom of Judah whenever Jehoiakim was reigning and the kingdom of Babylon whenever Nebuchadnezzar was was reigning. You miss that and you miss the context of the whole book. And we know from history that these two kingdoms collided and the siege of Jerusalem mentioned here happened about 605 BC. Now that's the time frame of the book, about 600 years before Christ and it was the time of the kings and we also know it was the time of, of the divided kingdom because Judah has a king which means that, that Israel did as well. The, the ten tribes to, to the north were Israel, the two tribes to to the south were Judah, and Jehoiakim was king of the south. He was, a, he was a vassal of Egypt. He was a weak king and who followed uh, the, the great king Josiah, who reigned for about 31 years. Uh, Jehoaz was, uh, was the king for about three months between them. 
but Josiah's shadow is, is still looming over, over, over Jerusalem. And when Daniel was born about 620 B.C., he was born into a time of political turmoil. A faithful king goes off the scene. Uh, his, his son is, is brought to power. He's only there for a few months. There's a, there's a vassal king uh, subject to Egypt put in place. And, and the Assyrians that, that had reigned in the Near East for 100 years, their kingdom is, is on the downgrade, and the Babylonians are trying to take over. So, so you have the, the Babylonians in the, in the north, and you have the Egyptians in the south, and, and Judah is caught somewhere in the middle, and, and everybody's jockeying for, uh, for, for a position. Syrians had, had invaded in about 740 B.C., the, the northern kingdom of Israel, and, and now their power is failing, and so someone wants to take dominance. And Babylon is well known to you. It was all the way back to Genesis 11. It was located in modern-day Iraq between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's probably, you probably heard it in, uh, in history class the, about the Mesopotamian Valley and and we know exactly where the city was, based on archaeology. It's about 50 miles from Baghdad. And while I wouldn't recommend a tourist trip to Iraq right now, if you could ever do that, then, then you could actually go to the city. It didn't just rise in Daniel's time. It's actually mentioned as a dominant force in history from the time of Abraham. You've probably heard of one of its most famous kings, Hammurabi, the Hammurabi Law Code, which bears its name. He lived about 200 years before Moses and the Exodus and and the power of Babylon ebbs and flows, and, and yet it remains a cultural center throughout the centuries. And because of that central location and centuries of development, it became known for its knowledge and astrology and learning. And the wise men from there became famous, known as the Chaldeans, also called the Magi in Luke chapter 2. Those Magi likely learned about the Messiah from Daniel. In Daniel's day, Babylon was a, provident, a province of Assyria, whose capital was Nineveh. Babylon sat on the council of Assyria, never liked its subservient roles, and so they see this as an opportunity. There's always state tensions and rebellions, and you can read about uh, some of those throws in Isaiah 30. A plot failed in but in 626 B.C., a new king of Babylon named Labo Palasar broke away from weakening Assyria and established independence. And he had been under another general, a name you probably know, Ashurbanipal, the Assyrian king. And, and when he died, he took advantage and, and rebelled. And he was supported by his son, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And as successful as he was, he decided he didn't want to just be a, a general, he wanted to be independent. And so Babylon returned to prominence and a word, world power. And in 612 B.C., Nabopolassar besieged Nineveh and captured it. Nahum prophesies about this event. And so in 612 B.C., Nineveh falls. And so Daniel would have been about 10 years old when the Babylonian kingdom starts to, starts to take over, just as God foretold. And with Assyria out of the way, this other superpower, Egypt in the south, recognizes that, and they start to flex their muscles. And Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, brings his army to Carchemish and meets the Babylonians in 605 B.C. That battle is mentioned in Ezekiel 30. And 
And in the late spring, early summer of 605 B.C., Prince Nebuchadnezzar wins a pivotal battle and defeats Egypt and chases him back south. And as he's chasing him back south, he's gobbling up the the territories of, of Egypt left behind, one of which was the kingdom of Judah. And so within seven years of Nineveh's fall, that same Babylonian kingdom comes knocking on the door of the gates in Jerusalem and and he knocks it down, and that's what's described in verses 1 and 2. See, it's like the, the can. It it's springs out of all kinds of detail. And Nebuchadnezzar sends an army to the gates of Jerusalem, and King Jehoiakim, believing that he could not win, strikes terms for the king. He'll surrender, he'll open the gates, and he'll become a vassal. So he opens the gates, the Babylonians come in, and they take some of the spoils home. Have you ever wondered why verse 2 says they took some of the, of the things from the house of God? Why not all of them? Well, because this is, these are terms that are struck. This is favorable. Jehoiakim agrees to be under, under Babylon. But look who ultimately is responsible for what's taking place. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of of Shinar. It says the Lord handed the king and the vessels over. And one of the things that you did if you were polytheistic and you conquered other people is that you would take some of the religious artifacts or items of, of, of their worship and you would put them in, in on your own idol shelf. And you bring them back to worship them a, a, as well, kind of hedging your bet, if you will. You know, I mean, my God's more powerful than your God because your God's stuff is in my God's house, but he may have some power too and I may need him, so, so I think I ought to honor him, him as well. You didn't want to leave, leave him out. The other thing that you did is that you staffed your kingdom with people from, from other lands. Look if you would at verse 3. It says, Then the king told... Ashpenaz, the chief of, the, of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and notives, nobles. And he gives the qualifications for who he's looking for. What's going on here is while Nebuchadnezzar was conquering, he gets word that Nabopolassar, his father, has died, and he has to leave off his conquering of Judah and hurry home. Literally, it's like a three-week period of time. Uh, Nabopolassar dies on August 17th in 605, and on September 7th in 605, just three weeks later, Nebuchadnezzar is enthroned as the king of Babylon. He's no longer prince, he's, he's now the king. And so when Nebuchadnezzar races back home to make sure somebody doesn't weasel into to his position, he leaves behind his chief of staff with these instructions. Find some of the nobility, young men that we can bring back to, to Babylon and, and, and train. So he commands a group of Hebrew youth from the royal family and other nobility to be taken to Babylon and be retrained in the ways of the Chaldeans. I mean, think about it, it makes sense. I mean, if you were Babylon, if you were the world center for pagan wisdom and cultures, uh, and culture for centuries... And you take a city like Jerusalem, you'd want to change their, their ways. A city that believed in one God. I mean, you'd send the higher-ups, uh, the children of the higher-ups to college. You would send them to Babylonian Berkeley or High Gardens Harvard. And 
they can really be educated there. That's what's happening in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. This will ensure a lesser opportunity for rebellion, and it also ensures loyalty. You bring them out of their homeland, you'd bring them to the capital, you'd re-educate them, you would deprogram them, you, you would teach them your culture and your language, and if that took, then, then you would make them uh, cabinet members. And it wasn't just any young men that he was, that he was looking for, there's a specific kind. Uh, there are actually five requirements listed here in verse 3. They, they had to be from political families. They had to be physically impressive. They had to be intellectually sharp, showing aptitude, and socially poised, and, and of a teachable age. Uh, one commentator said, status, looks, brains, presence, and moldability. That's what, what they were looking for. And doing this denied the kingdom you conquered of future leaders that could turn into warriors and lead a rebellion. So you take the best and the brightest, and you retrain them, and you use them yourself. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar's plan was for, for Daniel and his friends. It's called cultural deconstruction. It's one of the oldest practices in history. The Romans did it when they Hellenized the Jewish people. It's what China is doing to the, to the Uyghur Muslims in their internment camps today. It's what college campuses and schools are doing to your Christian children. It's called sensitivity training in your workplace. It's what the new administration is doing in the U.S. military. You start with impressionable people who have not formed convictions themselves, and you shape them, which is why Daniel and his friends are 15, 16 years of age, and you take them out of their environment, and, and you do that as a group, so there, there can even be a peer pressure to, to conform. Daniel and his friends were, were to undergo a Babylonian makeover in, in three ways. Verse 4 and, and following says they would be taught a new language, which would be in Akkadian and Sumerian and Aramaic. They would be taught literature, which wasn't just what they read. It was everything from science uh, to history to astrology to mathematics to, to medicine, all of which would be a Babylonian worldview. And Babylon had uh, an extensive uh, library of, of literature. And they would learn the ways of the Babylonian court. Uh, they'd stand in the king's palace. So, so think protocol and manners and discipline and etiquette and culture. And it's there that we learn this second insight. While Daniel was removed by God, Daniel was resolve to follow God in these new circumstances. The name Daniel means God is my judge. And that same God was present in Babylon just like he was in Jerusalem. If you would at verse 8, it says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine with which he drank. Now let me give you some context so you can understand the significance of this verse. As a friend of mine said, you don't want to... I mean, you read that and you're just so familiar, you just kind of let that pass by and you don't really grasp what, what Daniel is, is facing here. I mean, once since Daniel was one of the chosen youths for a very special program, it's a privilege to be selected. And you heard the qualifications. There are other Hebrew youth that were left behind and, and they were subjected ultimately to horrible things. 
And the program was to last three years, and, and it had to pass, uh, uh, you had to pass or fail at the very end in an oral exam, and it involved learning the ways of, of this new culture, and if Daniel passed at the end of the three years, his life would be good. I mean, he, he would have a, a cushy government job with the most powerful kingdom on, on earth at the, at the moment. But if he failed the three-year exam, he would be subjected to slavery and unimaginable abuse, and, and that's what's at stake for Daniel. He's 15 or 16 years of age, and he's being trekked to, across the land to, to some place that he's never been. And Daniel is now in a foreign land under pagan rule and in the process of being reprogrammed, and, and it says there, in that place, in that location, under these circumstances... There he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He decided he would not turn to the right or to the left. Alistair Begg said the, the Hebrew boys were relocated, re-educated, and renamed, but they still drew the line that they would not deny God. Now think of the courage that this takes. To refuse the royal diet could have been an insult. And this is as soon as he arrives. This is not after he gets to know people. Think of the peer pressure that, that others that were deported went along and ate. There's only a handful that didn't. It could have left a bad taste in the mouth of those who would be responsible for grading you, pun intended. You rejected the best food in Babylon when you first arrived. I mean, who do you think you are? Uh, the food itself was amazing. I mean, this is food from the king's table. Besides, Jerusalem's 900 miles away. Nobody's even going to know. And finally, think of the circumstances. I mean, you're Daniel. You don't have this knowledge of Daniel chapter 1 or verse 2 where the Lord is, is giving him over. I mean, you, you, you know what Jeremiah said. But you still might be tempted to think, I mean, God's kingdom and God's temple was just taken over and could easily have been disillusioned. But the text says Daniel ordered his life by his convictions. Stephen Miller, in his commentary, notes the word defile occurs 11 times in the Old Testament, and it refers to moral and ceremonial defilement. And in Daniel's case, he would have been defiled by being dependent on the king instead of God. I really think that's what's going on here. By both eating the meat and drinking the wine that that was there. Yeah, the wine was sacrificed to, to false gods, but so were the vegetables that, that he probably ate. And yeah, Babylonians ate pork and horse flesh, and that would have definitely been against the, the, the law. But, but really what's going on here is, is Daniel is, is not allowing himself to become dependent on, on the king. Where did Daniel receive such conviction? At 15 years old, nonetheless. Well, listen to Second Chronicles 34, because it describes one of Daniel's relatives. It says, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. Whoever this passage is talking about 
He's talking about a man about Daniel's age. Does sound familiar? Now you know where Daniel and his friends got their conviction and had been modeled by their family. This is a passage about the former King Josiah, who started as a youth. And so in the words of another pastor friend of mine, parents take heart. You might not get everything right, and there may be things that you wish that they didn't pick up, but, and some of them might not get it at all, but the best legacy that you can leave for your children is a life of clarity, a life of conviction, a life that's, that, that's true and, and the knowledge of the Bible. You may be preparing a Daniel whenever you do. Daniel grew up in a home that had God as its center, Bible as its guide, and, and when Daniel was old enough to stand on his own, he did. And in the moments like Daniel faced, there are always two options. There's there's conviction or compromise. You have that choice. And compromise trades conviction for comfort. It, It sells concrete principles for convenient positions. Compromise is driven by fear or, or desire. I'm afraid of losing something that I desire more than obeying God. Or I want something more. Than God, so I'm willing to compromise to, to get it. Conviction, on the other hand, is a lot simpler, but, but many times more painful. Conviction purposes to do right regardless of circumstance or comfort. And it's not always as easy as you might think to, to see it. The devil doesn't announce what he's doing. The Bible says he uses deceptive schemes that, that require discernment. Uh, I mean, when you think about verse 8 again, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine that he drank. Think about what Daniel purposed not to do. His conviction was over food. And it wasn't that he just didn't like the menu. It was the partaking of it that, that what it represented. I mean, he refused to eat the king's choice meat and drink the king's wine in this program. And it was choice food. It's the best Babylon had to offer. It wasn't bad. It's not like bread and water. I mean, this is the best there is. The food that Daniel ate was royal rations, literally rich food or dainties, which is from the king's table, meaning the very food that the king ate. And the issue for Daniel may have been pork, may have been horse flesh. I mean, that obviously would have been an issue for him. But wine was never prohibited in the Old Testament. Drunkenness obviously was. And as I said, the vegetables would have been sacrificed as as well. You see how subtle it can be when you face a choice between conviction or capitulation? I mean, you know, in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, there's there's nothing that's really unclean that God has created. And Daniel knows his theology, he knows there's no such thing as Marduk. So this is just good wine, according to Paul, right? I mean, Daniel wouldn't want to offend the unbelieving Babylonians, would he? I mean, it would be a bad testimony, wouldn't it? I mean, isn't he supposed to be all things to all men that he might win some? How does he know he might not win the Babylonians by, by going along with the program? Won't this hinder his ability to witness to him by taking this position? I mean, think of what the Babylonians thought. I mean, they're going, you can't, you can't eat things? This is the best food. That's ridiculous. What's wrong with you? And not only that, shouldn't Daniel just do what he's commanded to do since Babylon is now his authority? Isn't that what Romans 13 says? 
But they're not asking him to commit some great sin like murder. This is food, for goodness sakes. And the Babylonians are applying this rule equally. Everybody eats the same thing, so they're not singling Daniel out. Everybody in the program follows the same rules. The little phrase in verses 6 through 7 says, among these were some from Judah. That indicates the, there were more young men than just Daniel and his friends taken to Babylon. Isn't that wrong for Daniel to ask for some kind of special treatment? Isn't that a bad testimony? I mean, you can hear all those things, even rattling around today. And you'll be placed in similar situations, likely you have already. And, and when you're there, the only way to hold fast and not compromise and to have clarity is to have your conviction settled up front. Situational ethics will not work as a follower of Christ or or in the words of the great theologian Aaron Tippin, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. You must purpose in your heart not to defile yourself. So when they take your children and try to re-educate them, teach them new history through media and movie and change their values through culture or give them a new morality or lack thereof, and try to employ them even in their own fight against the values of their parents and their forefathers, you must have already become a Daniel who has formed his convictions, not by his circumstances, but by Scripture. So even when you're removed from the land and given different food and taught a different language and learn a different history, it won't change who you are. The cement must be poured in forms already and shaped by God's Word. And it has to be hardened over time, so when the enemy comes to trample on it, it, it won't move, it, it won't crack. If the concrete has no forms, and it's just poured out on the ground, it'll be too thin and too weak, and so when the enemy drives his truck over it, it it'll just crack and, and crumble. And the concrete can't be wet whenever the enemy comes. He'll just add some water to it and reshape it. Be, be careful about using your, the, the motto that you're sending your children as missionaries whenever the cement is still wet. Who Daniel was was based on his convictions, and his convictions were, were not negotiable. And God preserved him through it, which is the third insight. The third insight that Daniel reveals in the character of conviction, is that Daniel was recognized through God. Look, if you would, at, at verse 9. It says, Now Daniel, uh, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the, the commander of, of officials. This is the, the second time this Hebrew word, give, Natan, is, is used in chapter 1. God gave, Daniel purposed, Here's God gave, and then God will give again at the end of the, uh, of the chapter. Verse 2 says, God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And after Daniel resisted the pressure to compromise his convictions, verse 9 says, God gave him favor in the sight of Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff. And so Daniel and his friends come up with a plan. Notice verse 8. The first part of that comes before the, the, the last part. Daniel purposes in his heart first, and then he appeals. He comes up with a plan. If his plan doesn't work, Daniel's committed to stand, regardless of uh, and face the Babylonian music. But he has a plan, and, and it, it's, it's risky. But God intervenes for him. 
Daniel's plan is to appeal to the chief of staff for a, and be allowed to eat a special diet. And that just doesn't happen unless God intervenes, and he does. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion. One of those words is has said, loyal love of God, word for the loyal love of God. So God's really given favor. And, and look at the, the official's response in, in verse 10. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit, forfeit my head to the king. He doesn't lop their head off. He doesn't say, how dare you even ask for such a thing because God had given favor in his heart for these. But he says, I, I fear my head more than I love you. Ashpenaz liked the boys, but he feared the king. So he reconciles this, uh, uh, those two things, by doing what a lot of politicians do. He just, he just looks the other way. I can't give you permission, because if I know about it, then I'm going to lose my head, but I really like you. So verse 10 is like saying, look, I can't give you permission to do this, but if I don't know about it, then it didn't happen. And I'm not sure if you've ever recognized this before, but there are two officials that are involved here. Look, if you would, at verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, so this is an underling, please test your servants for 10 days. Now here's the plan. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance be examined in your presence. And if we look good, then keep the diet up. My friend said this is, this is clearly a miracle by God because anybody that looks better after eating vegetables is, uh, is just it's miraculous, right? So Daniel approaches the guard and he agrees. Now, now think about this. If the chief official was fearful of losing his head, why would an underling be willing to go along with the plan? Well, he's a politician too. Where do you think the food and the wine went for the ten days while it was being withheld? <laughs> it probably went something like this. Well, look, for ten days, try this out, and at the end of ten days, we've got a three-year program here. At the end of the ten days, if we don't look dramatically different, uh, we can quit. And Ten days is not going to really make that much of a difference. And besides, for ten days, you can have all of the king's portion of food and, and, and wine. And the guy probably thought, this is wonderful, and these stupid Hebrews are crazy. And look how it worked out in verse 17. As for these four youths, here it is again, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. The final Natan, Daniel and his friends were given something. God gave them all into Babylon's hand. God gave them all favor. God gave them all knowledge and intelligence, but God gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams exclusively, which sets up the rest of the book. And at the end, when they stood before the king and he spoke with them, this is meaning the oral exam, meaning he tested them in languages and the ways of the Chaldeans. I mean, God didn't just zap them with that, with that knowledge. God gave them favor. These men applied themselves. They learned 
what was before them without compromising. The Hebrew boys passed and excelled above them all. I mean, it says that they were even better than his current advisors in, in all of the land. Now think about this. They spoke more fluently than the natives. They were wiser than grown men. They knew more than the wise men of Babylon. That's a miracle that God performed for these boys because of their faithfulness. God is sovereign. God preserves His faithful ones. And God is bringing about His kingdom. Those are the three themes of of Daniel. And those three themes, every one of them, are proclaimed in this final verse. Look at how this chapter ends in verse 21. They pass the exam. They are the best of the best, ten times better. Verse 21, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. It's an irony statement of victory. In those few little words... God is declaring all three of those themes. It's set against verse 1, whenever the king of Babylon overtakes Judah, when God gave Judah into the hands of Babylon. But even there, God reigns. I don't know if you recognize this, but did you notice that Daniel used the title Shinar, the land of Shinar? That's not what Babylon was called in Daniel's day. Do you know why he did that? Because that's what it was called in Genesis 11. It goes all the way back to Genesis 11. Babylon, according to Revelation, is the mother of all false religions. Human rebellion coalesces there in Daniel 11 with the Tower of Babel, and that is the beginning of all false religions in the, in the world. And so you see in the beginning of chapter 1... Uh, Babylon finally overtaking God's people and even taking things out of the the temple. So here finally, after thousands of years, after Genesis 11, the the world's empire, the the worshipped false gods, has overtaken God's people and God's temple. And the question that that should be coming to your mind is, is, has God lost? Has he... Is evil prevailed? I mean, how is God sovereign over all nations in this possible? And if God protects His faithful, it doesn't look like He's protecting them now being deported to, to Babylon. I mean, how could this happen? And so chapter 1 ends with Daniel reigned until the first year of Cyrus. Not Cyrus the Babylonian. Cyrus the Medo-Persian. And so the verse proclaims that Babylon falls... But Daniel reigns, and he remains. And there's a testimony of Daniel's character and commitment, but there's also one of God's sovereignty over seeming defeat. Now, why do I tell you that? Because you put it into our day. Has God failed? Will his church compromise and capitulate? Will his purposes come to an end with all of the... The, the wicked winds that, that are blowing? I mean, we ask this because it seems like he's given us into the hands of the ba- of Babylonian leaders. Do you remember why Judah was given over temporarily? Jeremiah says it was because of their wickedness. 
We've killed 62 million babies as a nation. We've written homosexuality into our laws. We look at pornography daily. We take little children and tell them that they can choose between their sex. And we thumb our noses at God's laws. We mock as Christ. What we should be asking is, why hasn't God turned us over before now? (laughs) And the privilege that we get in the midst of that is to remain faithful with rank evil all around us. We get to stand firm and faithful declaring that there's a God in heaven, no matter who reigns, and that's our privilege. But you'll not do that unless you purpose in your heart to not compromise like Daniel. And you'll not do that if the cement is still wet, hasn't cured yet. And you'll not do that if there's not forms of where you're learning doctrine and theology and, and, and actually purposing yourself. It'll slip right off the hook. Let me leave you with this thought. I want you to notice that there are only four who refused to compromise. There are likely hundreds that were taken. Living by conviction, you're always in the minority, even amongst believers. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. He's talking about it's an invitation to salvation. But there's a broad road and a straight gate. And there are many, many on the broad road. And few are there that find the straight gate. There are many living by convenience, and there are few living by conviction. Which will you be? Would you bow your heads? Father, I do thank you for all that you've taught me through Daniel chapter 1, and I anticipate future lessons. But the one you have before us today is is just being reminded to, to, to walk by faith and not by sight, not what we see, not what we feel, not what we experience, but what you declare in your word. There's a God reigning in Jerusalem, and that same God reigns in Babylon, and And that for us, in the midst of of that, we have a tremendous privilege. Um, We can purpose in our hearts not to defile ourselves or be dependent upon this world. And we don't know whether you'll deliver us through it or you'll deliver us in it, but we trust you. In the end, you tell us that while the Babylons come and go, rise and fall, we will reign with you, Lord Jesus, in the kingdom that's coming. So I pray that you'll help us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.